Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators, each location is a community curated and powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems with entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with R. Scott Bromley. Everybody wants to be a star. Everybody wants to be a star. And where are you, if you're in a theater, where is the stars? But on the stage. So let's make, make the, stage the stage the dance floor. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pod bless everybody and welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is architect and interior designer R. Scott Bromley, an inductee into the Interior Design Hall of Fame in 1991. Mr. Bromley has designed buildings and interiors in New York City for over 50 years, but he will forever be remembered for his groundbreaking architectural work for the most famous and infamous nightclub, Studio 54. In this interview, I got to stop by his Manhattan office and over a glass of rosé, we got to chat about his upbringing in Canada, how he got into architecture, how he landed the job at Studio 54. He shares stories about the founders of Studio 54, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, and so much more. He is a legend in the world of architecture with amazing stories to tell. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the Hall of Fame interior designer, the architect of Studio 54, my friend, the silent giant, R. Scott Bromley. Scott Bromley, what's going on, man? Hey. Dude, uh, dude thank, thank you so much for the rosé and having me in your office. This is pretty fly. Listen, this is the best office to ever be in. I, I can't I, lie. What, what a view. Right. And uh, if you're not having a good time, I tell the kids, go home. There Come we, back when you're smiling. There we go. Well, no, you know what's a nice view? When you're looking down at the New York Times. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Right. How's the day going for you? How's the day going for me? Uh, we solved a few problems. We're, okay. We're, we're working on uh, the Bearsford, which is a big building in New York City. Okay. And one West 81st Street. Okay. And it's, we're working on the North... So, uh, no, the um, Southeast Tower, okay. which is, and it's four floors. Wow. So, right. so first of all, I know this is going to be a fun interview when you called me, and the energy was like, we were, it's like we were in a nightclub <laughs> on the phone call. We are. I dimmed the lights. <laughs> 
So um, anyway, this apartment used to belong to um, uh, Helen Gurley Brown. Who is that? Oh, Helen she was Gurley like, Brown. Who's that? Well, you. Well, <laughs> she was a big white girl. <laughs> I'm a fan of those. There you go. <laughs> and you know, I think she's really famous for Cosmopolitan magazine. Okay, there we go. There we go. I, I should know who she is, but it's it's, a, it's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a young guy, so I'm trying to keep up with the right. with all the knowledge. Wait, so wait, you are originally from? I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. I was born in uh, Montreal, okay. April 28. Okay, okay. 1939. I'm 80. Oh, Scott, you know what? I, I ask this question every time on the podcast because I think there's two things. Uh, there's a recipe for successful people. I think some people think it's kind of like a... Um, an apple that you pluck off of a tree and that's what successful people are like but i find that where you're from and what your parents do tend to shape uh who you become so tell me about your parents what did uh they do for a living oh my parents my mother was a housekeeper a house a housewife okay. right you didn't work in those days both my parents were born in 1901 okay and my father only had one job he was so poor that he couldn't go to college and my mother was very rich and went to college they met in sunday school and my mother's mother wouldn't let her marry my father for 16 years not until he had a great job and he had a and he had money wait so 16 my, years of dating yeah, oh that's man. really wooing i, I, I want to cue like the all in the family music <clears throat> like those were the days <laughs> And so, um, finally, finally they did get married, but my father only had really one job, and it was with the Canadian National Railway. Okay. He started off as the mailroom boy and became the vice president. Oh, wow. We had a country cottage north of Montreal in a place called Lac des Iles, and I knew I was going to be an architect or a doctor, but I think it got really settled when... My, I used to be able to draw plans, and my parents said, you know, we're going to expand this little cabin. You design it. And so I was 11, and we built it, and so, it was great. Wait, wait, where did the idea to become an architect even come from? I could draw. I could draw. But, you but, know, but, I, but why not do comics? Where, where did it, where did, how did architecture come in, into play? Well, I think I probably had a sense of business, and, you know, I was, an artist was going to be a starving artist. Yeah. And or, or a cartoonist or whatever. But I could really draw. I mean, if I had a pencil and paper here, I could draw you sitting here and it would actually look like you, Corey. Oh, wow. OK. OK. We might <laughs> so, have to I had, pen and paper. so I had to. <laughs> so, I, you know, I just like to draw and drawing and technology. You know, I was uh, I was so dyslexic as a kid. I never read a book. I never read a novel till I was 40. Wow. That's a long story. But, <laughs> so, but, so, so tell me how uh, you mentioned that you, you had this love for, for drawing. Um, but how did, what was Montreal like growing up at the time? Great. I lived in a, 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 a suburb. It's not, you know, it's not a, it wasn't a huge town, maybe a million or a million and a half in, in the 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, and I went to McGill University and my tuition was $800 wow. a year. And I worked every summer to pay for it. And um, I was kind of independent. And as soon as I graduated, I knew that I wanted to come to the 
uncrowned capital of the world, New York City. Yeah. So on January 9th, 1964, I jumped in my MG, two suitcases, $400, and came to New York. Wow. So, yeah, you have, um, you kind of struck me as a, like, like a rock star architect. You know what I mean? There's, there's some people that you meet that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. You remind me a lot of George Lois. Ever heard of George Lois? No. George Lois is, um, he's like the, the, a rock star. He, you know, Don Draper from yes, Mad Men? Right. It's based off of him. He's a rock star advertiser. <clears throat> his approach to advertising is a middle finger to society. And, you know, and that's his approach. Where does that rebellious spirit come from, from, from you? Um, oh, I was the black sheep. I was the black sheep of the family. Explain that. Well, I was always in trouble, even with the police, you know, and my parents were like middle class and living in the suburb of Hampstead. And, you know, it was, um, you know, I was always in deep shit. <laughs> uh, how did music play a, a role in, in your life at the time? I actually played the piano. Okay. I actually graduated in the piano from high school, and it was my, my top, my top score, ninety-three, from the Ontario um, Conservatory of Music. Uh, why didn't you pursue piano? Because I couldn't read. Oh, okay. So you, you could learn yeah, music by once ear. Once I played it once, once I played it once, I had this great memory. But you know, when I I was so dyslexic, I had a hard time doing the hand you know, I thing. And so I had a hard time reading and I really never read a book until I was 40. That's a great story too, but I don't know how much time we have. Oh yeah, we got, we got, we got a little time. Much time as you have, because um, I'm interested to talk to you. So, so hold on. So did you ever have any desire to pursue piano as a career or was it just going to be a hobby I did play you? well, um, but I couldn't read. So what good was it to me? You know, but, but, but did I you... did, I do enjoy it. In fact, I go to a house in St. Bart's every uh, winter for like two and a half, three weeks, and it has a grand piano in it. And wow. every now and then I get to tinkle on it and have the greatest time. Oh, but you never want to pursue like a rock star dream no, with it? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but I always think I, I always thought I would, could be a good singer, you know? I thought I could always, I thought I could be an entertainer as a singer, not as an actor. Everybody tried to get me into the movies and this and that. And I was great pals with, with uh, Tony Perkins. We yeah. were neighbors. And he said, listen, oh, you look just like a young Montgomery Cliff or somebody like that. And he said, well, I'll get you started. And I said, uh-uh, too nervous. <laughs> you have a nice tone. Well, You sound nice over the microphone. Well, thank you. <laughs> So, okay, so tell me more. You're, you said you went to McGill, uh, McGill. For, for college. What was right. your experience like? Well, it was a six-year course, which I managed to do in seven years. Okay, there you I, go. I was going into a fourth-year class, and I couldn't pass a second-year subject. So they said, why don't you take off the year, go work for an architect or an engineer, and then come back, take some summer courses, and, you know, God damn it, pass this exam because you have talent. So I said, okay, that's what I did. And I went to work for a guy called E.J. Ryan, and he was an engineer and a really old guy, maybe in his 80s. Okay. And he really liked me, and he sent me to Corner Brook, Newfoundland to redesign an existing hotel there. Now, the old hotels in, in, uh, in, in the English colonies <laughs> were, you know, each had a room, but the bathrooms were at the end of the corridor. Okay. And I was to go and measure this hotel and figure out how I could get a bathroom for every room. 
So I got really clever and um, I discovered that I could get a bathroom with every, for every room and get more rooms. Interesting. So they were like thrilled about that. And right. And every, and I was staying at the hotel that I was measuring and I, every night I would go and sit at the bar. And then one night this, I was sitting beside a bar and this man was uh, making a fly, a fishing fly, you know, and I was fascinated because I really do well with my hands. I can fix your car. I can fix your, you know, your washing machine, you know, but I couldn't read. You can read with your hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so <clears throat> I watched him make this fly, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. I said, how are you doing that? And he said, so he showed me and everything, and he says, where are you from? I said, I'm actually from McGill, but I'm doing some work here at the hotel. And he said, did you play sports and everything? I said, well, I swam for, I swam for McGill, and I swam for Montreal, and, and I was really a competitive swimmer. And he says, oh, would you like to come on my TV show? I'm the sportscaster. Oh, get out. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. So we went and we talked about it. I also skied in a water ski show and did a few things like that, right? So all of a sudden, uh, I went on for the one, one, uh, one episode, and he got all this fan mail. Bring this guy back. <laughs> Bring this guy back. So I was on for three weeks. <laughs> so it was a real fun experience. When you... Uh when did you know that you had a natural gift for architecture? Uh, early on, early on because I could draw. And then when I designed this house when I was 11, my, my parents actually took the, wait, wait, took hold the hold bite. Hold on, hold on. You designed the house at 11? Yeah. They, they explain that. Like, like, how, 11, they... it comes after 10, and it's, <laughs> well, but, and it's this before what, this 12. That's what I don't understand. Like, like, <clears throat> how did you have the idea to know that an architect, like designing uh, and building... Oh, I was always interested in houses, and I could actually sit down and draw the plan. I, it was, it was, you know, one of those God-given things. You know, wow. I can, we can design now here in the office, and I know what it's going to look like before it gets built. I mean, I have that vision. Wow, I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, so, so you you leave Miguel, right? Yeah. So you, you, the the seven-year plan, <laughs> right. the seven-year plan at, at Miguel. Seven-year plan at Miguel. What, leave Miguel. Come to New York. What drew you to come to? Obviously, it's New York City, it was, and it's New York City. But what drew you personally to uh, New well, York? Well, as I said before, it's the uncrowned capital of the world. You can do anything here. You know, you can do anything here. You can, you can buy anything here. You can buy a giraffe here if you look hard <laughs> enough. You know, true. So, so you moved here, and what year was this? Did you move to New York? Uh, Sixty-four. And 64. And what was the climate like uh, oh, so in New York City? It was so and fun and so dirty. I you know I came from Montreal and, you know, you could lick off the streets, you know. New York to me was so dirty and it was kind of funky and I enjoyed it. And my mother was an English professor, so I spoke well in those days. But I couldn't believe the English that I heard in New York City. I ain't going to do this. I done not that. <laughs> and I was loving it. And, and ax, my favorite one was, I'm going to ax you. <laughs> ax you something. Yeah, ax you something, right? <laughs> so I was like just fascinated. And um, I, <clears throat> I was staying at a horse farm in, in, in Stanford, and I took the train into New York City, and I got off at Grand Central, and I looked at him and I said, employment agency and I said oh that's what I need and I had a shoebox 
with little drawings that I had done and everything. I didn't have a portfolio. I had nothing, right? Yeah. And I, so I said, oh, I need this place. So I got out there and this gal interviewed me and she said, you got anything to show me? And I pulled, you know, I set the, my little shoe box there. And I had already designed a couple of houses in Canada and, um, and I had sketches and I could really draw. And she said, are these yours? And I thought, well, that's a very strange question. Of course they're mine. I brought them here, right? <laughs> And she said, go see this guy. So I went to see this guy. I saw this guy at Emory Roth and Sons, and he said, these your drawings? And I said, yeah, they're mine. And he said, when would you like to start? You can start Monday if you like. And I said, I said, well, what are you going to pay me? He says, well, what do you want? And I was thinking, oh, well, and when I had left Canada after working three months after graduating, I was making 90 bucks. Um, a week and I thought oh, I'll be really brave and I said I want 135 bucks a week and he said fine and little did I know that everybody that was graduating in New York City was getting 150 <laughs> <laughs> so why was a bargain <laughs> so, so this was in one day yes and one day you had employment in New York City yeah well wow. no, I didn't have an appointment I just was gonna oh, go oh, and wander around in employment yeah I went to the employment agency and and, and they sent me to this place, and then I had a job. Wow. Who was like the rock star or, or uh, architect or the person you admired their work at this time? Well, funnily enough, one was Philip Johnson. Okay. And Philip Johnson lived in New Canaan. And I was at the moment still, I'm still living. This is early 1964, and I'm living in Stanford. And I had my MG there at the, and I actually that morning I took my MG in to get uh, oil changed and everything. And on my way back, it was Friday night and the trains were packed. Every matron in the tri-state area was, had been shopping Fifth Avenue and they were going home, right? And I couldn't find a seat. And then I saw way up the next car up there, two cars up, there was a, a couple of empty seats. So I was... I ran and as I slid in, this older gentleman slid in beside me. And he said, wow, this is crazy, right? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, I'm gonna go to the bar car. That's what this guy said to me. He said, I said, you better leave your Times Magazine on your seat. See all these ladies here? They're gonna be wanting your seat. He says, perfect. So the train ride from New York City to North Stamford is 46 minutes 30 minutes into the ride this guy hasn't returned and i'm fending off all his seats so finally he comes back right and i just look at him i said this train ride is 46 minutes and you've been gone 30 minutes and you come back and don't have a drink for me <laughs> this guy looks at me and he says oh he knows that i'm like mm, and I, right and so he says, uh, sits down beside me, and, and he says, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Stanford. And I said, and where are you from? I'm from New Canaan. And, he, and I, I said, oh, I know New Canaan, because sometimes they help a friend of mine in the pet store in New Canaan. And he says, why don't you work in the pet store all the time? And I said, oh, don't be silly. I'm an architect, and I work in New York, uh, New York City. And he says, I'm an architect too. My name's Philip Johnson. Wow. Wow. So then he says, how are you getting home? And I said, I actually have my car in the grease monkeys and, um, 
So I need to call, I need to call the farm to come pick me. He says, I know exactly where you live and I have to go to dinner and I pass by your farm. Uh, so come to my place. I said, okay, fine. So, you know, here it is. It's the sun is setting. I'm in this long Mercedes driven by Hans and Philip and I are in the back seat, right? And we get to this crest of the road and there down glowing is this glass house you know his famous glass house and my like heart is going like boom 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 right and so we get into get in there and there gretel was the maid and hans was the but that's what i called him hansel and, <laughs> his name was hansel and gretel <laughs> his name was john right? <laughs> probably <laughs> and and brigitte but anyway <laughs> so um he says how about a negroni and i said Oh, I don't know what this is. Is this something I slipped my feet into or whatever thing? And I said, I've said, sure. <laughs> well, it's this lace drink, this drink laced with all sorts of liquors, right? And everything. So I have one, but my parents entertained a lot. I could drink. I could, I learned how to drink. And then Philip's changing his clothes. There's no walls in this house except for the bathroom, which is a circle, right? So there's like just pieces of furniture. I see the clothes flying and everything. And then Philip comes back and says, oh, how about another Negroni? And I'm not gonna say no, right? Yeah. So I said, sure. So he hasn't, we have a Negroni together. Then he starts walking me around this glass house and he says, oh, here's a Chamberlain and here's a Giacometti and here's, and I'm looking at all this famous art, right? And I'm thinking, I can't, I'm pinching myself, I can't believe. And then we're talking and then he looks at his watch and he says, Hey, we're late. We're late. We're late. We got to go. We got to go. I said, okay, fine, 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 fine. And so um, the dim, the house lights dim in the glass house and out on the pea gravel lawn, the lights go up and it's a 1957 Mercedes Gullwing. What in the world? So I'm thinking, I'm about to leave the house of my dreams and enter and ride in the car of my dreams. And so... Um, so off we went and he drove like a madman. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the roads are skinny and the car is wide, you know? So, but he knew exactly where I was going and everything. And I had a little valise and he locked it in, in, the, in the trunk. And, I, and so he got me to the farm and I said, I gotta get my, he says, I'm really late. You'll have to come tomorrow for lunch to get it. Wow. What, 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 was he, what, was he, what was he famous for, his work? The Roofless Church was the very famous thing that he did. But he's, he did the, the um, State Theater at, in, um, at uh, Lincoln Center. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, no, and, and this famous glass house he did as, as part of his thesis. He was, came from a very rich family, right? And he was kind of a quasi-Nazi, and uh, his mother got on him and said, listen, don't you get into that Nazi thing and you do this synagogue for the for the Jews for free so she had a ruling hand right wow and he was a really interesting guy he always had a three-piece three-piece suit on and he never um and he hated two things Christmas and children (laughs) well I mean they go together yeah there you go so anyway so, so he dropped me off, right? And then I went into the house. Oh, and in the house, it was really interesting. In the house was staying Tab Hunter. I'm sure you don't know that name. No. But lots of people would. He was a very famous movie actor in the 50s and 60s. Okay. And Larry Kurt was also staying there. Tab Hunter was, in the, it was staying at this farm, and he's a horse lover, and he was uh, doing 
the milk train doesn't stop here anymore with Tallulah Bankhead. Okay, yeah. Five performances only, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he still had his horse, so he was riding. So, um, so I walked in, and I said, I just had a ride and a house tour of Philip Johnson's. And so they were all in awe, you know. And he says, and he has my suitcase. I have to go there tomorrow. So I got my MG, and I drove and I drove my way and, and um, had lunch with Philip. And when I got there, uh, Henry Riss Russell Hitchcock, a famous historian, was there. Uh, Ada Louise Huxtable, the architecture critic for the New York Times, was there. Okay. All these big wigs, right? And me. And it's a long story, but um, we all sat down to dinner uh, for lunch, right? And there were two little plates in front of me, one smaller than the other, and they both had salads in them. And I thought, oh, what am I supposed to do here, right? So, and then there was a plethora of like flatware on either side, right? And so I, I just watched everybody and picked up the right fork and spoon, hopefully. Right? <laughs> And then all of a sudden, those two salads disappeared. And then the next thing came, um, this bowl of red stuff. And I think, oh, this is the soup course, and it's borscht. Well, wrong. It was dessert. <laughs> and I hadn't hardly eaten anything. And you know, at 24 years old, you're like... You're a grown boy. You're a grown boy, right? <laughs> so they all looked at me, and they all pushed their oatmeal cookie in my direction. And we all laughed hysterically, <laughs> right? And, and I got to be pals with Philip, and he finally asked me to come and work for him, and that's how I got to work for him. Wow. Okay. So I'm a big believer that in life, uh, exposure is one of the most important things in the development of a human. Like once you see something, once you see what success looks like, once you see someone in the nice suit or you see someone in the car that you want, you get to eat the food that you've always dreamed of eating or didn't even know what you're eating. Um, it's hard to put those things in your mind and forget them. Uh, what, what impact did working with Philip have on your career after that moment of meeting him? Well, I think that I began to look at more pieces of art. You know, he had always just threw this all this art at me at the very first night that I met him, right? And then he was building uh, an art gallery, uh, half submerged under the ground, right? And uh, in subsequent visits, he said he came back to me. We always had a good rapport, and he came back to me and he says, "Listen, I want you to be the first one to see this art gallery um, that's half buried in the ground, right?" It's a famous art gallery now. Anyway, he, so when I got down there, it was a series of wings with art on them, and you just pushed them around and pushed. And I said, oh, Philip, wait, welcome to Macy's Rug Department. <laughs> well, he thought that was the funniest thing. And that cemented our relationship. And we had, we had a very good time. He was a, he was a crazy, sweet man. And he couldn't draw for shit, you know? I, I, he would stand over your shoulder, and he would just scratch away, and I would close my eyes and listen to what he was having to say rather than watch him because watching him made no sense at all. So I would listen to said, you know, you need, I think we need to have more glass here and turn the corner and do something. And so I just closed my eyes and listened, and then, then I kind of could figure out what he was really trying to do. At, at what point in your career did you realize that you were kind of making a name for yourself um, well, <laughs> kind of away from Philip. So like three years later in, 16, in 69, he and some guy called John Bergie appeared, uh, appeared and was going to be his partner. And I thought to myself, it ain't Johnson and Bromley, it's Johnson and Bergie. So I said, I need to leave. 
So my old company, Emory Roth & Sons, invited me back for an enormous salary to be the head of design. And I stayed there until 1974 when there was a mini, mini drop in the, in the stock market. And they didn't have any work and I didn't have any work. So I went to Fire Island for the summer. I came back in September. They said, we well, don't have any work. I said, you have to fire me. So they said, okay. So I went to collect $90. <laughs> a week from okay. from Social Security or, or unemployment insurance, right? And I opened my own business in my in my rent controlled apartment on Fifty Sixth Street. Now, from, now from your uh, once again, I'm I'm coming from a different background, from a music background. Really, so the questions that I, I want to <laughs> ask you maybe it's kind of elementary, no. but like, what would you? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com say your specialty was at this time in architecture specifically well i was very interested in housing because that's the only thing i've ever designed uh, except when i worked for emory roth and sons i did by the time i was 26 i had 13 skyscrapers up in new york city that i had designed now is uh, now is this the interior architecture or is it no, exterior ar ex architecture? exterior okay yeah this was real right and then in 1974 when there was this drop in the market and no one had money to build new but they had money maybe to renovate so i think so i started sculpturing the insides of spaces and i i guess maybe i was one of the first interior architects there was okay and i started to i had i i did a showroom at the dnd building and then i did uh, I, I did a house um in east hampton um and it was uh, well received and whatever and all of a sudden I was doing houses which I knew better than anything else because I mean I designed all these tall buildings but I didn't work in them I didn't you know I my office once with with uh, with Philip was in the Seagram's building on the 38th floor overlooking the East River how terrible is that <laughs> not bad <laughs> right? uh, uh, so how did it come to be that uh, you would design Studio 54 how, how that happened well the um, 77, 70, uh, 76, 77, I, I, I partnered with a good friend, Robin Jacobson, and we designed a store on, on 57th Street called Avatari in uh, 77. And the opening, and it was great because it had 14 feet class, but no mullions between them, you know, no like vertical strips between them. They were joined, they were butt joined with little pieces of, of metal okay. clips, right? So okay. this was the first thing that, first time this has happened in New York City. And it got rave reviews and lots of things. And in the meantime, 
um, a group of us had done little jobs that the New York Times picked up and um, and uh, did a little story about up-and-coming architects and designers, right? And Ron, Dad, and I were in this article, which nobody seems to be able to find anymore. But um, and got this call from Carmen D'Alessio says, "I have a, I'm representing Carmen a publicist, publicist yeah. of Studio Fifty Four. Yeah. Yes, she says, uh, listen, I'm I'm representing the, these two guys. They sort of want to do an I." a nightclub in something. We just saw your article in the Times. Do you want to come and take a peek at this old studio on 54th Street? And I said, sure. So Ron, Dad, and I went. And we walked in. We met her. She's a piece of fire. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love her. And uh, walked in. And um, I, I looked at Ron. I said, I know exactly what to do. I said, you know what? Everybody wants to be a star. Everybody wants to be a star, and where are you, if you're in a theater, where is the stars? But on the stage. So let's make the stage the dance floor. So that was that was the the genesis of it all. Then we flattened the flattened the rake of the theater out, and we and it turned out that we had to step down one step on the thing, and you know we just used had fun with, um, you know. Yeah, high-tech materials. I mean, the floor was covered in astroturf. We had vinyl, you know, vinyl, vinyl um, fabric bound with packing tape to make these banquettes that everything rolled around. You could change the shape of the room, and not physically, but you could change the shape of the room with the furniture, you know, and they all fit together or all, they all separated. And so every night it looked different. Yeah, uh, look, take me back to you were with Carmen when she gave you the first tour of the space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, this, if I'm not mistaken, Studio 54 was the old, like an old television it was studio actually, or something. It, yes, it was. It was first designed as the Gallo Opera House. Okay. Then it, be, then it got, became defunct, and then uh, CBS took it over as a, as a, uh, as a, as a TV studio. And like... $64,000 question was there and what's my line and whatever, you know, and that kind of fell into disrepair. And the, the, uh, obviously the boys saw this and Carmen called us and I don't think anybody else was ever, ever called in to design this. Uh, you know, it's not always great to shout out your first ideas, but some of some of the, the most of the time, your first ideas are your best ideas. So we didn't say, "Oh, we'll come back and make it." I said, "Look at, I think we can do this, this, and this." Yeah, and, and did right, you instantly look right at the space on the very first interview, and bingo, we were doing it. Did you instantly instantly look at the space and see that see the vision of what you could do with it? Yeah, right. Um, well, that's that that's that little special insight I have. What What was the uh, what was a challenge, um, a challenge for you? To get it done in six weeks. <laughs> so you get, yeah, six weeks to get it done. Yeah, we, we, got, we built it in six weeks. We had two crews of Irish workmen right off the boat, I think, you know, building this. And we opened in September of... 77? Uh, uh, yeah, no. April 26, 1977. So uh, did you have a chance to... Um, meet with Seaver Bell and Ian Schrager at all? All the time. I dealt with Ian all the time. And then I would see, I would see Rebel at the beach. 
<laughs> the right. Then he would be staggering around, you know, and every time he saw me, he'd come up and gave me a great big hug and a kiss, you know. What what was, um describe uh, Ian and, and Steve. Ian, Ian was the business guy. Ian was really bright. He had great ideas and he was fun to deal with. And, um, and um, you know, Stevie was all smiles and tits and ass, you know? He was like all... He was the vibe. Yeah, he, yeah <laughs> right. He was the guy. Uh, at, at this time, too, did you did you know the magnitude before you took on a right We had took on no this job? idea it was going to be a household word. We had no idea. We it, were just designing stuff and thinking outside the box. You know, we had lasers and, and old chandeliers and painted lots of stuff, black and maroon and red, you know? We had six-foot speakers i mean we you know it was, it was. And, and scott let me uh for for folks who uh obviously you know it's a podcast so it's an audio experience can you describe what uh what it was like walking in to cd54 at that time well it was <clears throat> it was interesting because there was a vestibule so there was two sets of glass doors right so you really couldn't hear the sound on the outside and then you got and there was a long walkway with mirrored windows on both mirrored uh wind there was mirrored they looked like windows but um, a set of mirrored windows running down both sides of this long corridor and then as soon as you got to the end you could hear the thump of the music and we had set this um this revolving stainless steel door at the end of the corridor. So sometimes the sound was muffled and sometimes it wasn't. But as soon as you rounded the corner, you were there. And there was this big triangular bar. There was a, a, a raised DJ booth and this dance floor. And it was all mayhem after that, you know? It was, it was this really pretty walk through this Galleria like uh, Versailles wow. and then bingo the music hit you and everything else did too now uh did did Steve and Ian have any input at all as far as like what they wanted oh or of course I we dealt with Steve uh, we dealt with uh, Schrager all the time what, what were some of their specs that they that they really were kind of stressing to you uh, well I think that they were thinking that they wanted to do, to be something that no one had ever seen before and an experience that that was unique. And so we were pulling out all sorts of ideas. Lots of them got rejected. Some of them didn't. And, um, you know, when you, I, I don't know how old, when I was 36, I don't know how old I was around there, <laughs> around there, you know, you still had lots of energy and, you, you know, and you were always not so cautious about your design ideas and everything. And it worked just, it worked for us. Now there was the the famous uh, um, balcony. Yes. Now with the balcony, was there any construction that was done, or was that left? The... No, we actually we took all the seats out of the balcony, and okay. then we carpeted it, and then we had banquettes and pillows and everything. But my favorite room was the bumper room, which which was cantilevered over the balcony, and it was made with black vinyl tubes. And it was great. And everybody says, oh, you're going to, you know, they hose it down at night because it's a sex pit. You know, yeah. it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't true at all. Well, parts of it were. <laughs> they just, the, the hosing part wasn't true. <laughs> now, now the, um, for folks who maybe uh, will see pictures of uh, 54, there's the, the infamous moon. 
yes. uh, with the spoon. Done by Richie Williamson. Right. Yeah, how did that come well, to he was be? Well, he was the graphic artist, and, and that, you know, and Moon and Spoon, you know, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, <laughs> you know? And it was West 54th Street, you know, Hooker City. And it was like, it was, you know, you got to that area, you knew if you're going to top it, it had to be something really spectacular, you know? Now, did, did Moon also do the logo as well? No, somebody else did the logo, and I can't tell you who that is at this moment. But, okay. Right, no. Because... Um, you know, there's a new documentary out called Studio 54, the documentary. I think it's on Netflix, and it came out in, yes, I believe, right? right? right. And yeah. It came out a couple of years. Matt Tynauer did it. And so a few of us traveled around to different um, film festivals, you know, kind of promoting it. And uh, so, um, hey. <laughs> so, so here we are. We have uh, now the club is done, right? after six weeks which is yep no time open <laughs> what was an inspiration uh was there anything that inspired you the inspiration of the club like was there anything you were like i wanted to be like this and feel like this no no because we just wanted it to be like nothing else we've seen and so uh with jules fisher and paul Morantz doing all this tricky lighting you know with the with the um the cop bubbles and the sirens and the and the, and the pole lights that went up and down. You know, no one had seen anything like this before. There were a few things that we thought of that weren't allowed by the fire department, <laughs> like like flaming flaming flames, you know, coming out of the dance floor. They didn't like that idea. Yeah, that that makes that makes sense. But those were the things that we were talking about. Like, what what outrageous stuff can we do? Now, now how inspired were you? by the music that was coming out at this oh, time. I remember this first sound, sound check was Disco Inferno. And to this day makes me just get goosebumps. So, you know? when, so on April, was it April? 20? April 26, 1977. The sound check, the first song they played. Well, in that probably the night before, but. <laughs> and the night before, the first song that was played in 54. The very first song, right? Was this Richie played it. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, plus there was so amplified. You know, it was, you could feel the music go through your body. Now, uh, yeah, let's get to the sound. Who was in charge of of making the sound? Richard. Somebody was Richard Long. I think I may be wrong about this, but I think Richard, um, a guy called Richard Long, did the sound. Okay. Now, and as the architect, is is that also your responsibility to bring these other people together? At, at all? No, actually, we really just did the design, the layout, the way it worked, and whatever. And but we did talk to the sound guys because we wanted to place the, the the amps and the woofers and everything, you know, in the right spot. And um, it was a combined effort. Now we worked there late at night, you know, six days a week, seven days a week. Yeah, I was. We were in there hammering and nailing with the Irish kids. Now, did did you know? when you were completed, this was, oh, this is nice. Did you know that, that this I mean, was? I knew it was nice before we started. Wow, wow. No, okay, now please take me back to uh, April of 1977, the very first night. Can you tell me your account and your story? The very first night? What, uh, what were you wearing? I, I have no idea. Maybe a leather vest. I think probably I had a big black mustache in those days. Um, 
maybe a t-shirt and a leather vest and maybe jeans and work boots okay. you know whatever you know and um the kids from the, uh, the, the office group and a few friends. Oh, we, I had, we had a little entourage. We went to some place on 46th Street for, the, for dinner, right? And then we got there and, you know, there was, there was, the street was blocked off. There were horses, um, you know, cops on horses. And the street was absolutely impassable, right? Um, but we worked our way in and, and um, Stevie was there and Mark Beneke and of course they knew who I was and everything. So we wall straight in and, you know, it was everything that we thought it would be. And it was just mind blowing. Wow. At this point, do you realize this is this is special? Like, like this is different than anything I've ever experienced? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. At that, oh, yeah. Ten seconds and you knew. Wow, uh, who who all was there that night that you remember? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I can't remember. You know, I'm an old guy. I can't remember that. Oh man. <laughs> okay, so so. Oh, what, what were? Do you remember some of the songs that were played? Um, well, I do remember Disco Inferno, and I can't remember. You know, th there were many. You know, but so I have some. I have some wonderful. You know, Diana Ross. She was a client actually. Diana Ross came, and um, you know. Uh, you know, um, Bianca and Halston wow. and Andy and Liza. Liza danced with my father. Wow. Are you serious? Yeah. She looked at me. She looked at his hair. She looked at my mother's hair. And, she's, and she says, you know, pointing to my parents and then to me, I said, I nod. And she says, she went right up and grabbed my father onto the dance floor. <laughs> what, what made Studio 54 uh, special for you? For me, um, just the fact that we had designed it and thought about it and, and, and created, you know, it's like having a baby, you know, you know, you work at it and you, and you, you do whatever you can to, to make something special. Um, and it's always, uh, and we got lots of compliments. It's always nice when someone says, you did a good job, you know, and that's the only thing that makes me keep pushing away is when clients say to me, you did a great job. Now, uh, did you know, at what point did you realize the historical significance that the club would have? Say that again, at, Corey. At, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, at what point would you realize the historical significance that the club would have? Probably day one really? after it opened. Yes. I mean, it was so special, right? And then the, the newspapers the next morning, the Daily, the daily News, is it, and whatever, and yeah, it was like all over the place. And then... The next week, more celebrities came. And the next week, you know, Joanne was, you know, getting the celebrities. Joanne, can't think of her name at the moment. but And uh, Myra, who was, um, who was Stevie's secretary, and Honey, who was uh, Schrager's secretary, you know. They were working their asses off getting people in there. And, and you would know, go whenever you wanted? <laughs> yes. Wow. Never got refused. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, and we used to take clients, you know, we used to take, you know, like the president of uh, Hilton Hotels couldn't get in, but could get in with us. I met Elton John there one day when I was doing a tour and he was on the new bridge that we had designed and he had his cap on. Right. And so somebody in the, he, the bridge came close to me and I and someone said, Elton Scott, Scott Elton. And I said, hi, Elton. And he flipped off his hat, forgetting that he had hair plugs. 
<laughs> and quickly put it back on again. <laughs> he was having a good time. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what did, uh, how did your career turn after Studio 54? And, and well, once you did Studio 54, you were on the map, you know, you know, the last, the last nightclub we did, Jerry and I, Jerry Kaldari and I did, yeah. was uh, in Moscow. Wow. It was called Manhattan Express in the 90s. Wow. Right? right? But we, we, did other, we did other nightclubs in uh, Chicago and all around the place. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you're in the Architecture Hall of Fame? Yes. Oh, what, what was Interior that? Design Hall of Fame. Interior Design Hall, Hall of Fame. Fame. Right. What, what, what was that like? To 91. What was, what was that? It was a beautiful evening, actually. But, <clears throat> and I remember that I had thrown my back out, and then they did a few words and everything about me, and then I went up on the stage, but I was really limping and... and um, um, you know, I was not walking well because I'd throw my back out. So I got to the mic and I said, better, better living through chemistry. <laughs> and I said, and as Phil Stiller says, I think my back goes out more than I do. Wow. <laughs> and at the end of my thank you speech, I said, you know, there are a few people here that couldn't, couldn't be with me tonight. And I and I started naming every friend I knew that died of AIDS. And I spent about half a minute saying names. And then I said names as I walked off the stage when the mic couldn't pick me up. And the place erupted in a standing ovation. Right? It was the time of AIDS. It was difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, c 54 was a, a revolutionary, um, you know, club. And re it represented a revolutionary time. Uh, in music in New York City and in American culture, um, you know how was it? You know, with the passing of Steve Rebell, you know. Right, I was at his funeral. Right, yeah. Oh, it was, what was his funeral like? Um, just mobbed, 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 mobbed. Everybody was there. Yeah. Right. It was, it was sad. It was sad. And so many friends died. You know, uh, Ron Dowd, who helped, who designed with me. Uh, so he died. Robin Jacobson, who I did the Avatar thing that won all the awards, died. They all died. You know, I'm I'm the dinosaur. You know, how, how did the the culture of the city change after '54? I think those that survived danced for our friends. Mm -hmm. You know, we kept up, we kept up the drives for money and for research, and you know that's all we could do. You know, and I think that bound lots of people together. Some people, um, you know, deserted going to the Pines Fire Island because it was a gay community. You know, and um, but you know, life goes on and life gets better, and you know. We're on this little blue planet to help each other out. That's what I say always. You know, you know, you you were this boy in Montreal with <laughs> a with a talent for uh, for il illustrating, and you ended up becoming uh, a part of the culture and the fabric of New York City forever. You know, whoa. Oh, whoa. just a little tin. You know what? <clears throat> it's very complimentary that you say that, but you know what? There is a little talent involved in that and a lot of luck. Hmm. There is a little talent there. You know, I, I say, though, I feel like there's a talent in being at the right place at the right time. Yes, yes. 
there, there's that, a talent that, did in that I meet too. Philip at the right place at the right time? Did I, you know? Yeah. Did I meet this gal from the, from the, um, uh, the uh, employment agency? You know, I, I just ran into the right people. Some famous, some not. But b- being that little boy from Montreal with a talent for drawing, to being who you are now, where you have this amazing office and I could like peer down and look down and look at the New York Times. You know, like, how does that feel? It's great. I love my life. I love what I do. I love my partner. I love all my life. I love my life partner. I love this office. I call them the kids. And we really have a good time together. We really do enjoy each other and produce some really great stuff. Uh, Scott, before we get out of here, uh, I ask everyone on the podcast the same question before we close out. What have you sacrificed to achieve the great things in life that you've achieved? What have I sacrificed? Um, nothing. I went with the flow. I, I, I would live my life over again exactly like I did. I lost, I lost a few boyfriends to AIDS, you know? Yeah. Um, that was hard to deal with. And, um, but I always had the drive to just keep going and, you know, dance for them, fight for them, draw for them, you know. Um, I do my life over again exactly like I had. There were hardships, sure there were, but, you know, that's part of growing up. It's part of learning who you are and part of being part of this world, you know. Wow. Scott Bromley, it's such an honor to be able to talk to you today. This is, I always, I always say, being in New York City channels my inner 16-year-old. I was that kid who would watch Behind the Music on VH1, and they would have the CF54 specials. And to be here today talking to you is unbelievable. I'm living my 16-year-old self. And thank oh, you so much for taking oh, the time. Thank you, Corey. This has been fun. This oh, has been really great. Thank you indeed. You know, uh, more rosé. More rosé. <laughs> Paves the way. <laughs> okay. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, R. Scott Bromley. This episode was mixed by Joshua Coleman. If you're a fan of Silent Giants, do me a big favor. In the Apple app, please be sure to leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. I'd be forever grateful. And lastly, before we get out of here, check out my other show, OPP, Other People's Podcasts, the TRL of Podcasting. Each week, I interview America's top podcasters, and we learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I'll have the link to that in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless y'all. Till next time.